Well, it is 9 o'clock, so I guess we'll get started. We'll get to this little mountain here, if you like, um, a little later. But we're going to start in chapter 9 of, of Amos. Uh, and we're going to start with where they speak of Israel's restoration. But before we do that, I want to, this section of prophecy is very different from what you've seen everywhere else in Amos. This particular section of prophecy is looking in the future, far farther future, and it's not looking at destruction, it's looking at creation. It's looking at uh, forgiveness and it's looking at mercy before we get started we'll, let's have a prayer gracious Lord I give you thanks for your word that we have I give you thanks for the prophet Amos who brings us a message that is so uh, that, that is so real at this time in this age and is so needed for us to hear I thank you father for your love and your mercy, which is shown in this last part of this book. I thank you, Father, that you care for us, that you love us, that you are a Father to us. Father, I give you thanks for the blessings that we have of, of your being your people, your church, your community. Father, I give you thanks for your Son through whom everything is possible and everything is needed, that we needed is done. I give you thanks for his redemption for us, and I give you thanks for your acceptance of us as your children and the mercy you show us. Father, guide our, our congregation at this time and be with our minds as we look at this last section of Amos. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A couple of things that I want to mention about um, about writing in the books of the Bible, um, and we're going to look at this section of Amos. And remember, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Amos is not the inspired word of Amos. Amos is the person that delivered it from God, wrote it down under inspiration, but God is the center of, of it. He is the one that inspires. He's the one that causes this book to be as it is. And so sometimes we come into difficult uh, sections and we try to ask ourselves, okay, what is this exactly? Where did it come from? And here is one uh, that is almost out in left field. What was the book of Amos about? Amos is saying some things to the kingdom of Israel. What is it about? What's it about? Was it a, hi, how are you? My name's Amos. Uh, God sent me to say, Things are wonderful. What did it, what was Amos about? 
how the upper class was treating the lower class and how God was very upset about it. Okay, how you're treating the lower class and how God feels about that. Uh, a little bit also of your worship, if you like, the way you worship me and what you consider as appropriate worship for me is just not right. But he's focused mostly on how you treat people. And because of the way you've treated people, what is Amos warning the people about? What's going to happen? Judgment. Pardon? Judgment. Judgment. God's judgment. The day of the Lord is coming for you. And the day of the Lord is the, when God judges, whether it's at the final judgment or it's other judgments that God makes. The day of the Lord is coming. This is the message of Amos. And it comes to the final head at the beginning, uh, through the 8th, 7th, 8th, ninth chapter, beginning of the ninth chapter, where he's basically told Israel, I'm done with you, says God. I'm turning my back on you. Uh, it, it reminds me the message that God has given. If for parents, they understand it pretty well. Um, we have kids and they annoy us and they do what we don't want them to do. And we keep telling them, you have to do what I want you to do. Otherwise, I'm going to get mad. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen to you. And finally, and, and the analogy is not perfect. And I, I recognize that, but it's... It, it, it gives a feel for it, I think. And um, how many times as a parent have we finally said, enough, this is it, I'm done with you, go. Turn our back. God's doing that same thing to Israel. Kids, I'm done with you. Go. Out of my sight. As a parent, how do we feel about an hour or two later? We love our kids, don't we? I had to do this. But we really feel not happy, bad. And we really feel that maybe I, that, that, that I need to, I've, maybe it was too hard on them. Keith? Isn't that pretty much the message of most every book of the Old Testament? Yeah. <laughs> show how we cannot on our own be the child that God wants. Yeah, not on our own. Not on our own teaching us to follow his ways instead of our own. What is God, really? Attributes of God. Supreme. Supreme, sovereign. sovereign. He's showing it and telling them, enough, I'm done, you're going to be destroyed. There's nothing you can say or do. I'm done. 
Patient up to a point. Patient up to a point. Love. Love. Mercy. Holy. Holy. All of those show up a little bit in what we have here. Um, that God is merciful. Um, and, and, I'm, and we survive on his mercy. God is merciful and gracious and loving. And here we see in Amos what happens when God's had enough. So, a couple of things. That leads up to the last two, if you like, prophecies in chapter 9. One from verse 11 and 12, and then 13 through 15. Where what we see, anger and destruction, and then... In that day, or the days are coming, and God is going to bless his people and bring them back. It's one of restoration, it's one of mercy, it's one of absolute grace, and it's showing the love of God. So, who wrote it though? Was this written by Amos? And it's heretical to say, oh no, it wasn't written by Amos. It was added on later on by, by a, uh, another writer. Does that make it any less inspired or any less the word of God? Some might say so. You read this and suddenly it's almost like a totally different person. And the first prophecy, especially because the first prophecy sounds like Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Uh, Jerusalem's destruction is 100 years from now, 150 years from now. And he's saying, well, uh, the, the restoration of David's kingdom is going to happen. Uh, it was led that many to think that uh, this is added by a post-exilic scribe, if you like, author. Uh, there's lots of, of uh, people that would say, yes, indeed, that's what we're seeing. It's not uncommon. Uh, the book of Chronicles. The book of Chronicles is sort of a priestly view of the book of Kings. And the book of Chronicles ends not at the destruction of Jerusalem, but with Cyrus becoming king of, of uh, Persia and preparing the, the Jews to come back to return from, uh, from exile. Very much chronicles flavored like this is post-exilic writing. Um, other examples, there are others, lots of them. You see it throughout Genesis, Exodus, all, all the all of the sections of the Pentateuch, uh, where there's every once in a while sort of priestly language that comes in, where perhaps a post-exilic 
scribe put some additions in. That maybe wasn't totally the writing of Moses. For instance, you know, he in Deuteronomy where they speak of the death of Moses. Well, Moses obviously didn't write that. Uh, so we have this one possible issue that this could have been a uh, these last two prophecies could have been added on by a, a post-exilic scribe from Judah. And um, it's important to look at uh, the, the 11th verse, the one, the prophecy in 11 and 12. Uh, in that day, sometime in the future, I will restore David's fallen shelter, repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it uh, as it used to be. And we'll stop there because this des definitely sounds like a city that's being put back together after being totally destroyed by Babylon. 12, though, has a different flavor. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. So is that prophecy uh, one speaking of the rebuilding of Jerusalem? If so, that would place it as a post-exilic writer saying that this is what God intended to do. But then that last verse of that prophecy uh, it is not one that was going to be fulfilled with the, re, with the uh, return from exile. And as a matter of fact, in the book of James, he uses that passage, um, but he uses it from the Septuagint, which is another issue that we had to deal with when reading Old Testament. What's the Septuagint? A Greek translation of the Hebrew. And uh, it lines up very well with the Hebrew in general, but sometimes not. Um, why do we need to know about the Septuagint? Because they went through the process of <clears throat> translating in the same way that translating from Greek to English or any other language it's not just always word for word. There's there's also cultural associations and there's nuances to phrases and um, things that that have meaning or would have meaning to an original hearer of that phrase that has been lost over time. So just kind of understanding some of that. Okay. Uh, actually, in, in, in that respect, it might be similar, obviously, to language-to-language -language translation, but even... In our own times, uh, we have the King James, which is in a very archaic English. And then we have modern translations and some that would say, well, the King James is the real Bible. The other ones are just not. Even though we can't understand the word the King James has, and many times we misunderstand what the words are because we don't speak that language. Well, at the time that the Septuagint was generated, Hebrew was not the language of the people. Greek was. And so they, they recognized that we need to have something 
that can be spoken and they can understand. So the Septuagint came around. Why it's important to remember that is because what uh, what Paul what Paul when he's writing and he's as long sections of, of quotation from the scriptures, Paul being educated as he was would have memorized the Torah in Hebrew. Yet he used a, very much for his quotations the Septuagint. Why? That's what the people knew. That's what the people he was writing to, that was their language, which was Greek, which was the common language of the Mediterranean. So Paul uses it a lot. Then it's, and though it may be surprising, but it, maybe it's not, that James uses this as well. And we'll get to that in a minute. So that's our first thing we have to remember is that even if somebody added to the scriptures, as they are handed down to us is the inspired word of God. We don't throw sections out because, well, I think somebody, a scribe in the post-excelic era, added something. Larry? They also would have taken great care to translate it as accurately as possible yeah. to the Greek. So they would have considered a faithful text, except to Jimmy 70. Jewish scholar worked on the translation. Yeah. And there's some mythology about it. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, they, uh, the Septuagint was a reliable translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. Though in, in certain areas it changes, but that's because language changes and, and people change. Yeah. Mike. I went to the uh, public library in San Diego and in a case they have a Bible, it's called the Vinegar Bible. I'm like, okay, I get what's what what does this mean, Vinegar Bible? They said it's only one of twelve that made it out of the printing press and it's a typo. <laughs> it meant to say in the passage, and Jesus went out to the vineyard to pray. And it actually said, Jesus went out to the vinegar to pray. So, <laughs> I think that one might use a little bit of translation. <laughs> well, in, in Hebrew, when they, when they were to, when the scribes were the right Hebrew, when they came to the Tetragrammaton, which we would say is Yahweh, they would put down that pen, pick up a different one, say a prayer, and write it. Put that one down, and then pick that one up. It's so holy to them. And so the, the amazing thing is when they look at older, trans, that older manuscripts of Hebrew Bibles, how accurate they, or how, how little change has occurred in it. It's absolutely amazing, but that's because the scribes considered that as the holy word of God and treated it that way. Keith? Say our Bible, our English Bible, doesn't just come from the Septuagint. The Vulgate would have been the King James family and the Aramaic. And so we marry them all. So, yes, we have a hodgepodge of all of that. 
we have something that the people who wrote the King James didn't have. And that's lots and lots more manuscripts in the Hebrew. And more knowledge of the Hebrew, of Hebrew, than they had. And they were very, they were very knowledgeable with the scriptures. And of course, they used the Vulgate from the word vulgar, which would mean common. Just as Koine Greek was the, the language of that, and Koine was basically meaning the common, the community's language, and not as opposed to classical. But we're getting, we're getting moved around. Bottom line, the first thing I want to mention is that, that it may be a different author and may have been written at a different time, 150 years later, maybe 200, doesn't take away from its inspiration, doesn't take away from the fact that it is the Word of God. And we'll move on to the second one point that we had to remember, and that was, uh, as I had already talked a little bit about, that uh, God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. Um, he's merciful to us, for which we can't say enough and can't praise God enough for his mercy. And God's love shines through sometimes like a ray of light in the darkness. And he offers mercy and redemption. So uh, we need to remember that uh, this is who God is. And that, uh, and that Amos is taking that picture in the book of Amos, regardless of the writer, uh, he has in there a few things, such as telling the people they should seek the Lord and live. That's in Amos 5.6. And we'll cover that hopefully in a few minutes. Um, and another section where it says, Perhaps the Lord, the God Almighty, will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And that's Amos, Amos 5.15. Uh, so for this reason, it's fitting that Amos should end. It should end with telling Israel that even though they're going to be destroyed, that through the mercy and the grace of God, they will be restored. Now, uh, we can take these two prophecies literally, um, and it sounds like they're speaking of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the restoring of David's kingdom, uh, the fulfillment of which was in the near future, maybe a few hundred years away. It also implies that Babylon has destroyed Judah and Jerusalem, uh, and this means that these verses were most likely added on. Uh, by a post-excelic scribe. Uh, if we, uh, we might take this metaphorically, and that would put it as the rebuilding of David's fallen shelter is the Messiah, is the rebuilding of the, of the Davidic kingdom. That was, remember David was, he was told that his kingdom would never end. His, his there would always be uh, 
members of his line there. And that looking at the Messiah as being what he's talking about here, and there's reason to say, yes, that is a, a correct way to look at it. Um, and that's because if we look at James, uh, and if we turn to Acts, the 15th chapter, one of my favorites, because it, uh, it really is where the direction of the church, or the, the direction of, of the vision of the church changed. Because we had, uh, we had a sect of Judaism that was suddenly becoming something of its own. And in the, if I can get my glasses on, or Keith's glasses on, uh, James gets up and he says, the words are, um, on the prophet are in agreement of this. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind, Acts 15, yeah, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Uh, and here he is where the Septuagint and the Hebrew, uh, very little bit. In the Hebrew it says Edom. Here it says um, that uh, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So we can take this view of it metaphorically uh, and then we can look back at you know, okay, the use of the Septuagint. That was the Bible that would have been known by the, by the Greek-speaking Jews in the Mediterranean region. And that is the language that Mediterranean people were speaking. It was the common language. Uh, Latin was there, but if you are, in most, most cases, you're, you're going to use Greek rather than Latin. Uh, the common people didn't use Latin. Uh, matter of fact, the common people in Rome didn't use Latin. They used the vulgar Latin, if you like. Uh, so, the, so we have that way of looking at it. And, it. and it has many, many good views of it. But the problem is, is uh, the feeling of verse 11 is they're rebuilding a city. Uh, and it could be the city being the city of God. But uh, the last way to interpret the prophecy is one that I particularly prefer, and that's sort of a mixture of both. Prophecy is not absolute in the say that here's a prophecy, it's going to be fulfilled, and that's it. It's been filled. Sometimes you have a prophecy and it's been fulfilled very close to when it was given. And then the thousand years later, that same prophecy is fulfilled in a different way. And we see that uh, uh, throughout the New Testament where, where they uh, speak of prophecies that were from Isaiah that were fulfilled then and didn't mean exactly what it was. And then it's shown that this also is 
calling is is a prophecy of of Jesus as the Messiah. Um, this so we have to remember that happens occasionally, and that uh, we can look at this then saying, well, the full the early the, the early fulfillment, if you like, would have for verse eleven would have been uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the return of the Jews to the uh, uh, to Judah and 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 the the land of uh, of uh, David and that uh, they would possess the remnant of Edom that was part of uh, the kingdom uh, at the time of David and so the whole kingdom is going to be rebuilt just as it was before with a secondary a second fulfillment through Christ. This is my preferred view of it, which is to say that there was an immediate fulfillment and then a thousand years, five hundred years, whatever later, through Christ we see that the church is going to be, uh, the kingdom of Christ is going to flourish and grow and that that's the final fulfillment of this. If we look at the second prophecy, it, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will overtake the plowman and the planter by the one who treads, who one treading uh, grapes, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And it will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. Uh, it would an alternate translation for that ending would be I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them they will plant vineyards and drink their wine they will make gardens and eat their fruit I will plant Israel in their own land never again to be uprooted from the land I'm giving them this sounds to me because I know that we don't have uh, we don't have Israel coming back out of exile. Israel meaning the northern kingdom. There were few. There was a remnant left over. There were some of them that lived down in Judah. There were some that were left behind, not many, by the Assyrians. And I don't see the 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 return from exile that we see with with Judah this would be much and the language it implies in my mind that we're looking way far in the future we're looking at the second coming of the messiah when everything is made new <coughs> and so we have this where it is this beautiful picture of heaven. It's one where things are so abundant that as fast as you you reap the harvest, there's another one right up there that you got to and you got to keep reaping. It's just abundance flowing. And the abundant blessing of God through his gracious mercy. And that they will rebuild their ruined cities, they they will once again become his people and dwell in his land with him uh, and their gardens will bear fruit and I will never uproot them again. And that sounds very much to me like 
the second coming, if you like. It's the fulfillment of God's prophecies of the Messiah. And that ends the book of Amos. A very beautiful ending to me. One of hope, one of mercy and love being shown to all mankind and shown to Israel after God has said, go to your room, I don't want to see you again. To come out and wrapping his arms around him and giving him a big hug, if you like. Not quite as simple as that, but at any rate, it's one that both points to the near and to the far in prophecies. So if we look back at the book of Amos, we need to remember a few things about it. Number one, uh, remember that Israel was an idolatrous nation, not even half idolatrous. They had an idol in their, their uh, temple, you might say, in, uh, in Bethel. They had an idol at the opposite end of the country. This is a long way and hard to get to that it, at Dan. And those were your gods. But Amos isn't yelling at them about that. A little bit. Uh, that about how bad their, their worship is. But he's really looking at what I believe is God's uh, real interest. I don't think God's real interest is, are you worshiping me right? Um, especially in the New Testament world, I don't believe that because I just don't see it. I don't see the, the dictates of worship. Uh, what's he really worried about? What's he really concerned about? How do you treat my people? How do you treat your brothers and your sisters? How do you treat the alien that uh, is living in your lands? And that's what it's about, saying that God is not happy with you, Israel, because you treat your people like dirt. You walk on them. God is not happy, Israel, because you treat the poor with injustice. The courts were, oh, we'll take it. Amy's going to court because she's being sued by the President of the United States. And guess who's going to win? <laughs> Amy, of course. <laughs> yeah, Amy, of course. It's, it's not quite that extreme, but it, it's it's... You're taking a common person that maybe not, you know, can barely read probably, and you're going to, not you, Amy, <laughs> and you're going to drag him into courts, and who wins? Well, the guy with the money to bribe the judge. And that's not Amy. It's the guy with the power. And God is saying, this is awful. That's not what I told you to, you were to do. What's the burden on the wealthy in God's community? To take care of those who have not. To take care of those who haven't. The burden of the wealthy is to take care of the poor. The burden of the wealthy is not to make more wealth. The burden of the wealthy is to spread that wealth. 
God blessed them. God blessed the wealthy. That's how they got there. Why he would bless some of the people with wealth, I have no idea. That's God's business, but regardless, God expects them to spread that wealth. Courts, oh, God, throughout the first five books is just hammering about unjust judges and how he, this is not going to happen in my, in my kingdom, my community. You're going to have honest judges. Well, in Israel, who could pay the money? Got the judge. That's what the book's about. The punishment for it. In, in God's community, he's going to dissolve his community because of their sins. And that leads me to uh, what I want to end up with, which is the fifth chapter of Amos is one I find very interesting. And, uh, and, and I would love to say that I saw this and it was obvious, and I didn't. I read it. It was obvious when I read it. Uh, but the book is this whole, from verse 1 to verse 17, is really sort of like a mountain or a pyramid. And you got to lament at the beginning and lament at the end. You have a call to seek God at the beginning and a call to seek good and not evil at the end. A list of sins in the beginning, a list of sins uh, at the end. Uh, God is the creator. God is the destroyer. And then the Lord is his name at the very center of it. And it's a beautiful picture. And I guess the people in Israel would have seen that very quickly, but really the first 17 verses of the fifth chapter are really focused on one thing. The Lord is his name. That's the middle of it. And the rest is different. This section, the Lord is his name, God the creator, God the destroyer, is part of a song which we see in the fifth chapter. We see parts of maybe the same song in the fourth chapter. We see parts of the same sort of song in the ninth chapter. And then be at a few verses, and then ends with, the Lord is his name. And so what I wanted to do was to break down that book uh, with a rewrite it, if you like, in a way that maybe we could see what he was saying and sort of deconstruct this pyramid. So with that in mind, I'm going to read um, a different version, reordered, of this book. Starting in verse 1. Hear the word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is, the, is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the Lord, the Sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left 
your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. And then jump to verse 16 and 17. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God Almighty, says. There will be wailing in all the streets, cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. And then begins his second thought. So that's the laments. His second thought, start in verse 4. This is what the Lord says to Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile. Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. And then jump to chapter verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that, um, that you, might, you may live. Then the Lord your God Almighty will be with you, just as you, you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on Joseph. Seek God, seek God. Seek good, seek God, seek good. And then you go to your sins. And those are start with verse 7 and then go through from uh, verse 7 and then jumps to uh, 10 through 13. So we'll read that. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then verse 10 continues the thought. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink the wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent shall keep quiet in such times, for times are evil. These are your sins. And then he goes into the song, and uh, the song is really divided into two pieces. And in between the two pieces is the center of this whole verse, or this whole uh, section of the fifth chapter. The Lord is his name. So we'll read that one. And, since, and these are, are totally contiguous. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens uh, day into night, who calls for the waters and pours them out over the face of the land. God is the creator. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city 
to ruin. So, he creates. God is, uh, God is uh, the, uh, he who made the Pleiades and iron and Orion and turns uh, midnight to dawn and darkens to, uh, the day into night, calls the water of the sea and pours in them over the face of the land. And then God is a destroyer. Verse 9, with a blinding flash, he destroys the strongholds and builds the fortified cities to ruin. The Lord is his name. So, uh, being the mathematician that I am and the lover of, of uh, structure, we see this pyramid, or if you like, a mountain peak. And the very peak of it is the Lord lamenting, seek good, but you're sinning. Remember, God creates, God destroys. The Lord is his name. And that, that's just um, the way that the book, or that this section of the fifth chapter, really means it fits together. And uh, this, is, this is done a lot, this type of structure. Uh, if anyone remembers, Bob Odell was teaching from Revelation, and he had a similar, similar kind of chart. You know, this, 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 and dividing it in half. And here we have this pyramid or this mountain, this hill, uh, that points to the main message in the fifth chapter. God, the Lord, God is his name. And that would maybe would be better uh, I, I capitalize Lord, all the letters of it, in uh, the, New Interna uh, uh, the New International Virgin, 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 <laughs> mouth doesn't always work right, the New International Version, uh, it uses that spelling, you might say, to be the Tetragrammaton. So it would be Yahweh is his name, if you like. And Richard's not here, but uh, in, in modern-day Judaism, uh, they would not use the name Yahweh. I don't even think they'd use the name Lord. They'd call it probably Hashim or Adonai or something of this sort. But this is the focus of chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. And to get, see that focus, you start what you need to be doing. You need to be lamenting and to seek God. Seek God and seek the same mirror image of God is good, not evil. Because these are your sins. And remember, God created, he can destroy. And Adonai or Yahweh is his name. That's who it's all about. Uh, if anyone has any questions, I'm glad to answer them. We have a couple of minutes, not much time. Any questions? If not, uh, I guess we're done. 
I have no idea what we're doing next week, uh, and I apologize for that in advance. Uh, I'm hoping that it will be a different elder coming in to preach or preach, coming in to teach something that he feels is important. This is I talk from Amos because I feel that his message is important. Uh, if not, maybe I'll go and do something like Joel. Another one, the Minor Prophets. How many have read the Minor Prophets? A lot. Good. That's, the, the Minor Prophets, remember, are not minor because the message is, is, of un, is of little importance. The Minor Prophets are the Minor Prophets because they're short. Minor's short. Not minor is inconsequential. As you can see here, quite important quite important in our own time. So you say they're short. How tall were they? Five foot? Yeah, they're about five foot. Uh, they weren't very tall. <laughs> there are probably fewer verses in Amos than in the first two chapters of, say, Jeremiah. <laughs> it's, uh, not really, but but nonetheless, that's, that's what makes them uh, different. And I, and, Larry, would you know are in the um, Hebrew Bible, are the minor prophets separated from what we consider the major prophets? Is that a separate book? I think it is, but I'm not sure. Well, uh, so next week you'll see someone, maybe me, I don't know. But uh, have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.